This is Land and Power, a podcast where we talk to people of color about the groundbreaking and thoughtful work they do related to land and power. My name's Yolanda Altamirano. I work at an organization called Forterra. We're a land trust in Seattle, land of the Coast Salish peoples. In this episode, we're diving into the truth. We'll explore a process called truth-telling. That's when people who've experienced harm and violence get to formally share their stories with others. Forterra is a land trust, but we're about more than conserving and stewarding land. We're about land and people and how the two interrelate. As we work to conserve and steward land, how can we address the systems that perpetuate injustice as it's related to land? What truths do we, as an organization, need to learn, especially as we accompany people and communities of color in our land-based work? And how can the process of truth-telling help us improve our conservation, stewardship, and policy work? That's what goes through our minds and our hearts here at Forterra. And we wanted to learn more and think in broader and bolder ways. That's why, on this episode, we're talking with Dr. Dave Ragland. He's an educator and thought leader, and you might even call him an expert in truth-telling. Dave co-founded the Truth-Telling Project of Ferguson, Missouri. It focuses on sharing stories and educating people, with the purpose of supporting structural change against systemic violence and racism. Dave says truth-telling is when you hear directly from people who have experienced injustice. Dave, who are the people doing the truth-telling in your work? And what truths are they sharing? So in general, when we talk about uh, truth-telling, I view it as those who are from communities that are impacted uh, by violence or whatever type of injustice that we're talking about. And in my work specifically, uh, truth-telling was those who were victimized by police violence Uh, either themselves or their family members. You know, let me say that Imani Scott, in her book, Can a Truth and Reconciliation Process Heal America? She says that truth-telling is the beginning of a moral inventory. And so when I hear people who don't have power, people who aren't believed, uh, people who are in the margins of this society, that's truth telling. And I've heard so many deep and amazing uh, truth telling. And I I think that, you know, one of uh, my friends actually, Brandon Anderson, his partner was killed by the police. And he's also the founder of Raheem.org, which is uh, a rising app that helps people document any encounter with police violence. And what was so powerful about what he said uh, was, number one, his embodiment. Number two, the experiences that he's had that don't just speak to police violence, but speak to 
the ways structural violence and racism impacts uh, the lives of people from uh, communities that are marginalized. And some of the recurring themes that I hear when people are sharing their truths are that people are really just trying to have a decent life. And they want to be able to raise their families. They don't want to experience violence. They want to be able to provide for their families. Um, And so when I've heard people tell their stories, um, like when I heard Sandra Blonde's sister, Shonda Needham, tell her stories um, about her sister, Sandra Bland, Shonda described Sandra's nieces and nephews missing her, wishing that she was there and what it's like or what it might be like to grow up without their auntie who had been so much a part of their life. And this this is repeated in different ways, uh, in different cultural identities, but people want to be respected because of who they are, their embodiment, their identity, and they want to have a decent life according to what they need, what their culture, their experience requires. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And sharing your story, being heard, having that um, honesty and truth, it's a part of the healing process. And yeah, how do you live your life holding on to that? And and you bring something up really important that to share your story and the way that we sort of um, situated truth telling was not some super formal process, but a process that made sacred the stories that were told um, in a way that people felt comfortable sharing and that they wouldn't be cross-examined as if the trauma that they experienced wasn't true. So to be believed is another piece. And often people from the communities and with the background of experiences I'm talking about are not believed. Yeah, I think I read something about you saying for these truth-telling moments, people should be within their own sort of affinity group um, to not maybe mix races. And I don't know if that's still happening. I don't, this was an older article. Um, but I, yeah, curious about that. Well, we, we just saw in the context of Ferguson that, you know, while so many different people were at the hearings, we wanted it to be populated by the community. We wanted the community leaders and people who are active in the communities to validate the stories. And we didn't want people feeling like they had to be on display for police officers who may have been intimidating for them or people who had in the past doubted them or been, you know, really disrespectful around one of the most, what I imagine is one of the most traumatic experiences that one can go through. What is a powerful story you've heard someone tell, if you can share? I mean, I would say uh, Andrew Joseph, 
uh, Indiana Joseph shared about their son, Andrew Joseph the third, uh, essentially going to school at a state county fair, and he was arrested by the police, and they cuffed him and brought him and took him across the highway where when he was trying to cross the street back, a car struck him. And the police never told them what actually happened. It had to come from one of the other kids. And I remember, number one, that was powerful for me because it was different than the other stories in the sense that it wasn't the police actually pulling the trigger, but yet they were responsible for this preteen who was supposed to meet his teachers and classmates at the bus in front of the, the fair. And the fact that they didn't have the respect enough to tell the parents what had happened. It was just like, oh, your kid got hit by a car. Um, and then when the other kids and the parents were bringing food um, to them, they started sharing what actually happened. And they described being horrified. And that particular fairground uh, in Florida, they have a history of arresting black kids for stuff that kids do. Why do you think people need to share their truths? I think we have a society that is accustomed to silence and accustomed to hiding uncomfortable realities in our manicured lawns and uh, perfectly orchestrated communities. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen like the way trailer parks are hidden often. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, this kind of the importance of telling the truth is part of a historical problem. Joseph Ellis writes about this in the book Founding Brothers, that the first generation of founders were explicit about not sharing the fact that there was rigorous debate about slavery that the the specific proceedings um, where there were conversations discussing it were not published until that first generation had died. And for me, when I think about that, I think about the way that American society has been a party to horrific violence against indigenous people Latinx communities, Black communities, and expected people to be quiet about it. And like we see it now in the protest when people really just want the protesters to be quiet and and go home. And truth is also important for a connected reason that along with that silence, Ignorance is produced and socially sanctioned. We can see it clearly in the current administration. And then we can also see the way ignorance is is produced and socially sanctioned 
in things like the Texas uh, textbook manufacturer that said that black people were transported uh, to the U.S. as opposed to brought in bondage, stolen, and so on and so forth. So there's a long uh, tradition of it. And there's a long tradition of even in schools, um, there not being adequate attention to, to the reality of our world and the reality of how our world um, has been manufactured, uh, particularly the, the world creating events of colonization and slavery. How can we be better at truth-telling? What can we do to be more honest in our lives? I think that um, part of it is, is being unwilling personally in our own lives to go along with the silences, you know, at the, at the dinner table when people don't want to talk finding ways to have the conversation about what's really happening. I think it's, I also think it's much deeper than just trying to have a, a conversation. I think it goes to the very heart of who people in this society think they are. I honestly believe that it is a spiritual practice to tell the truth. And it has to be that because our minds um, and having really good strategies for conversation starters are not enough to get people to face what they've lied about to themselves their whole lives. And this, this goes for me. So truth-telling has to be a public ritual that happens often. Uh, one of the things that we were really hoping for with the Truth Telling Project, and we're still pushing for this in around uh, some policy work that we're doing, is um, truth telling processes happening in cities around the country and a loose kind of national network that supports truth telling and some kind of network way that shows and tells the stories. Here's people telling the the truth and uncomfortable truths. I think that the Me Too movement has been really supportive in sharing truth that men don't want to hear and some women don't want to hear. The movement for Black Lives has been really important. I think Standing Rock has been really important with sharing uh, truth. And I think all of the movements in this moment uh, the LGBTQ movements, even Parkland, right? They are at the forefront of telling the truth about what is happening to them, to their lives, to their families' lives, to the environment. So I feel like this is one of the most generative moments in my life uh, for social movements. Um, so that feels exciting. So talking about individuals, um, how do organizations or companies participate in truth-telling? I think that that's an interesting question. So organizations or companies 
can participate in truth-telling by providing spaces for their membership or employees to tell the truth about what's happening within the organization or what's happening with their lives. There should be policies in place that uh, don't penalize people for being honest. I think creating a just work culture is one of the best ways for organizations to support truth-telling and that the leadership and the boards or those with decision-making power should be committed to ethical behavior. You know, when, when institutions and organizations are engaged in activities that are, you know, illegal or immoral, you know, they don't want people to know about it. They don't want employees to talk about it, you know, but when there's a culture of transparency and responsibility to the community, then that sets up the environment for there to be truth-telling and honesty about what's happening. Yeah, I mean, the organizations or companies are made up of people, so like we should all have that power uh, and responsibility to do that together in a collective space. Word. And I, I think that every few years or so, the institutions should be open to the changes that emerge from the, the new people that come. The institution should always be willing to reevaluate itself. Are we doing what we're supposed to do? Do we need to change? Do we need to exist? So like having the hard questions as a part of the culture is, I think, really important. And after this process of truth telling, would there ever be, you know, like this is the final moment, the truth has been told, then what big thing needs to happen then? I mean, in in my world, you know, (laughs) the way that I think about that is, is that what comes next is a repair process or reparations for what was told. Because there's nothing more traumatizing than to bear what happened, especially in front of people that aren't your community, but to bear it and everything stays the same. Nobody does anything. No laws are changed. No responses to the harm have uh, been addressed. And I think about reparations as a multifaceted process that includes compensation, restitution, uh, education and memorial building, culture shifting, which is a part of that and determined satisfaction, uh, healing, spiritual healing, mental, physical, given the impact of racial violence in this country on our psyches, the theft of uh, BIPOC communities, um, religions, the impact on birth rates, alcoholism, drug addiction, the way that the U.S. government put drugs into specific communities, the way that the United States responded to the crack epidemic in comparison to the opioid crisis. So so those are all components. And then the final piece is um, 
and I'm going I'm looking I'm using the the United Nations Development Program five areas of reparations the final area is guarantees of non-repeat how do we transform systems to prevent the same behavior from happening so for me repair isn't repair if the same companies that built prisons finance slavers and are still exploiting our communities or cutting the check. And I think that the midpoint between truth and reconciliation is reparations. Or put another way, there has to be a reparative process before we're cool. In your wildest dreams, what do you want to see happen in the U.S. when it comes to truth-telling and reparations? In my wildest dreams, I would love to see a see truth-telling happening in every community around the country where people who've been disenfranchised rise up and tell their stories and the whole country stops and listens. That... It is part of our culture of hearing the truth. Like it is it is a church that America needs to go to and that every person in this country find out the ways that they have been complicit, lay them out on the table and work with people uh, and communities to make repair. So yeah, I, I would love to see that happen as a way to address the spiritual crisis of our country. And maybe 50% of the country would be interested in that at this point. So I, I think we're at a place where we've never been before. And I think this process should be led by communities, not white middle-class uh, nonprofit leaders, and workers, and not necessarily academics like myself. But I, I think that everyone who testifies should be paid to testify and share their story, and that we create robust processes to protect people while they tell their stories. And I see truth-telling and repair as a potential realignment of our order, of our social order. Yeah, what would the reparations, what would those look like in your wildest dreams? It would look like a truth-telling and a truth-seeking process with um, healing processes built in, with the testimony being told, being used also to support and find out people's healing needs, and for people who have like for instance in Elaine Arkansas right now the Equal Justice Initiative and the Samuel DeWitt Proctor conference are leading a truth seeking process they they had a truth telling process now they're doing a truth seeking process because uh there was um Black people were victimized by white terrorists 
uh, in Elaine because sharecroppers had uh, dared to try to improve their working conditions. Um, and they were gathered in a church and white law enforcement and townspeople stood outside and shot up the the place where they were in. This also in that same region, a prominent uh, black farmer uh, was lynched because he created a kanjin for black farmers only. And he had thousands of acres that was stolen uh, by the sheriff. You know, and some of his descendants live in St. Louis, Missouri now. But there are so many stories like this. And that's, it's like the healing that has to happen has to be for people, the land. We have to see the land as living as they instead of it. They and them, theirs, the land is alive. It is speaking to us in this moment. And COVID really gave us a chance to, to, to stop for a minute and reflect. And that hasn't happened. So we're at a critical moment where if we do not do something, we are in deep shit. We already are in deep shit, but we are at that point. A huge thank you to Dr. Dave Raglan for his honesty and wisdom. Dave is the co-founder of The Truth Telling Project of Ferguson, Missouri. You can find out more at thetruthtellingproject.org. If you'd like to learn more about Forterra and what we do as a land trust, go to forterra.org. This podcast was produced by Kyle Norris in partnership with the team at Forterra, Everett Lawson, Susan Greylock-Yusum, Toby Levy, and me, Yolanda Altamirano.